We're in John chapter 13, 31 to 35. The big one another. <clears throat> Chuck Swindoll used to say, uh, when he was talking about uh, church attendance, he didn't bring up Hebrews 10, 25 to 27, which actually says, if you stop meeting together on a regular basis, you can become an enemy of God and burn in hell. It's pretty powerful. I know I'm speaking to the crowd, but Chuck Swindoll would say that how, because those there's people out there that would say, well, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. You know, you know I, don't, I don't need to do that. Say, I can read my Bible at home. I can pray at home. I don't even need to get out to be a Christian. And he would argue, how do you fulfill the one and other passages? You can't do that. I know it's tempting when you go through life, when you try to live your Christian life out and about, People will attack you. It's not easy. It's harder trying to live out your faith. So it's easy for people to default into this, I don't like people. I don't want to be around people. I want to stay home. I'll just read my Bible and pray. I don't need to go. I don't need to be out. A lot of people do this. But you can't fulfill the one and other passages, which the New Testament is full of, chock full of one another, without getting around other people. But today we're talking about the big one another. One of those things that if I teach a class on public speaking, which I do periodically, we did it in a men's breakfast, one of those things I emphasize is avoid reading to people unless you absolutely have to. And if you have to, then you better do it in such a way that they will listen. Because it's easy to become monotone when you're reading. And if you know kids, kids just won't pay attention if you're reading monotone. It's one of those things that mothers seem to do so well when they read to their children. And, and not just mothers, but just females in general tend to, when they read for other people, they're animated. And it's more listenable. And a lot of times when men read, they... Uh, they don't read animated. They just try to get through it without messing up a word. <laughs> so I'm going to violate one of my tenets in public speaking and try not to do extra reading. Well, I'm going to do it today. I'm going to read from Dr. Paul T. Butler right off the bat. I'm going to read again from him in a minute. He said this, Jesus, Jesus shows the marks of a true and loyal disciple, both by example and precept, one who will sacrifice self-will. Peter, trusting too much in self, shows he has the wrong concept. Now, we've seen this. And it's, I thought this was a brilliant statement, and then we're going to read some more from P.T. Butler in a little bit. I thought this was brilliant in multiple ways. One of them is that it highlights Remember when Jesus, he goes to the cross and he says, not my will, but yours be done. He prayed exactly as he taught us to pray when he said, your will be done in the Sermon on the Mount. So you wonder sometimes, why did he do this? Why did he have this thing where I don't want to do this? I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to do it, but your will be done. That's what he was doing in the garden. But why did, why did God inspire the writers to give us this part of the story that Jesus was feeling like, I don't know if I can do this. Because it demonstrates he was sacrificing self-will. 
His will was to avoid it. His Father's will was to fulfill it. And as we go through life, we're going to have to learn from Jesus' example. Sometimes we've got to push through the hard stuff in order to fulfill the will of God. And it also highlights this idea we've been talking about, selfishness versus selflessness. Let's jump into the text, John chapter 13, verse 31, and we'll read verse 32. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. We've already heard talk of this. We've already heard about this, you know, when Jesus was praying that God would be glorified. Glorify your name. And he said, I already have done it. And here Jesus is referring to it again. But what is all this talk? Now I'm going to read to you more from P.T. Butler. At the moment of the Lord's betrayal and arrest, it would seem to the disciples that their master had become the victim of unfortunate circumstances. But later, when the Holy Spirit should call to their minds his complete mastery of the situation, even before the betrayal, they would glorify his name. Judas did not escape detection. And there's more. A couple more slides from him. Judas did not even steal away secretly to do something, which was against the plan of Jesus. Here, this night, the Lord of the universe willingly and purposely sends his betrayer off to do his deed. The sacrificing servant of God is glorified in a majestic surrender of self. Next slide. God the Father, in intimate union with the Son, is also glorified by his majestic giving up of his only unique Son. At the Father's command is an unnumbered host of angelic warriors. At the instant word of the Father, they could have slain every human enemy of His Son, but the glorious love and mercy of the Father for a world in sin kept this command from being issued. Next slide. And soon, very soon now, would the ultimate victory be accomplished, the victory over sin upon Golgotha and the victory over death in Joseph's tomb. Then shall the Son of Man be glorified indeed. Then shall all his claims to deity be vindicated for all time. Now, go back to John chapter 13. Jesus continues, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. He's already done this. He's, he's already said this to the Jews. He says this. It's interesting that he starts this little piece off with little children. Now, keep in mind what is going on here. Um, we started with, it says, as he, as he left. Who? Who left? Judas. When Judas left, the intimate discussion got even more intimate. And then he says to his disciples, who are all adults, little children. Because he's making it clear who he is as he is teaching. We live in a very strange world today that's getting weirder and weirder. If you haven't noticed, that's just the kind of world we live in. 
I just had a conversation with a well-meaning adult, a young adult, young adult who hasn't had children yet, but will. And this young adult was put in a position of leadership in a business and a grandmother and a grandchild got into a very heated, loud fight argument, verbal, in front of everybody in this business. So this person that's put in charge of managing the place needs to quieten it down because everybody's now uncomfortable. And instead of just taking them to somewhere other location where other people can't hear it or just say, step outside the business if you're going to do that, instead this person decided to play counselor and say, you know what, I understand from your perspective, Grandma, you're, 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 you're right and you're wrong, and to the grandchild, and understand from your perspective, you're right and you're wrong. Getting into this stupid Dr. Spock kind of counseling where you've just got to tell each person, well, they're, they're, they're right and wrong, and then they're right and wrong, so we just, just, can we just get along? And the reality is the Bible teaches clearly there's right and wrong. And you really should be respecting the person that actually drove you to the business and takes care of you. It's, you have to do that. It's very biblical morality. There should not be an automatic expectation that the child, the grandmother, has to show the same respect to the child that the grandchild is supposed to show to the, show to the grandmother. That's wrong. But that's the world we live in. That's, that's why we have so much confusion. And Jesus makes it clear, I'm your teacher. Little children... Pay attention. He's got wisdom. So that's why he starts off that way with this section. And then he says, where am I? I'm going. You cannot come. But look, let's just review so we can wrap our heads around where we've gone. We're going to do this kind of in chapters. So chapter two, you see, he turned water into wine. Remember that? It was an interesting thing, but it was special. And it's his first miracle. And then we move on to the next bullet. In chapter 4, he healed the nobleman's, noblewoman's son. And then, and then the next section, chapter 5, he healed the man at the pool. Remember that? People got upset. The religious leaders, who told you to pick up your mat and walk? That's against our rules. And then he goes, that guy, that's the guy that did it. You remember that ingrate? Then we move on to the next one where he fed 5,000 plus because that was just men, at least 15,000 people. Remember when he fed them? It was amazing how he did that, teaching us that God's abundance is always greater than our need. And then you also see, he, right after that, he walked on the water. Remember that? Also in chapter 6. And then next, you also remember he healed a blind man in chapter 9. That caused a, a real stir, because everybody knew he was blind. Now he can see. And then you also see the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11. Now, I want to talk about some of Jesus' I am statements. And we'll go through them one at a time. And I want you to see something as we do this. The first one, he talked about being the bread of life. Pay careful attention to when he said it. And it was in, it was in John chapter 6 when he said, I am the bread of life. And notice it's right along, it's in the same where you see walking on water on the chart behind me. You can see that um, because right after that is when he said this, but this was following feeding the people with bread and fish. 
bread, manna from heaven, taking you back to the Old Testament. And then he says, I am the bread of life. And each time he's speaking in Hebrew, I know it's recorded in Greek in the New Testament, but he's speaking in Hebrew, saying that word Yahweh, Yahweh. And he's claiming to be deity. I am the bread of life. What I have, the very breath that's in you is from me, and I provide sustenance to life. The next thing he says when he says, I am, he says, I'm the light of the world. Pay attention to that one as well, because if you'll remember, he says, I am the light of the world in chapter 8. And by the way, chapter 8 is also the chapter, it's verse 21, I believe, where he tells the Jews, I'm going, where I'm going, you cannot come. But notice that chapter 8, he says, I'm the light of the world. And remember, this is at the Feast of Tabernacles, six months earlier than our text today. He, tell, he says, I am the light of the world. Remember how this played out. He's at the Feast of Tabernacles and all these, you know, the, the oil lamps, there's four of them that are way 70 feet up in the air and those are lit. And as they're lit and everybody's oohing and on over this ceremony where there's the light, Jesus says, I am the light. And notice in that chart behind me, notice alongside that, the next chapter is when Jesus heals a blind man. There's a connection. This man now has light in his eyes. He didn't before. And the next thing Jesus says, he is the gate of the sheep in chapter 10. And then the next thing he says is, he is the good shepherd. And then the last thing that we'll talk about today, because it's before our text, he says he's the resurrection and the life. I want you to pay attention to the highlighted part about the blind man and the light of the world. You'll see that highlighted right there. And also a little star there because that's our text takes us to that particular passage six months prior when Jesus tells the Jews, I'm going to a place you cannot go. And he tells his disciples the same thing in our text today. And it's a, it's a cool thing because as he's doing this, they don't really understand, but later that light bulb in their head will go off. I wanted you to see that connection. Okay, so now let's go to verses 34 and 35, the final two verses in our text today. A new command I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, for a moment, just back up in your minds to what we've already talked about this morning. So it wasn't by accident, even though it might have looked like to his disciples, to, to Jesus, when they come to arrest him, like, oh, what an unfortunate turn of events, which is what P.T. Butler brought up. This is a horrible thing. They're capturing the wrong guy. They, they shouldn't be doing this. This is horrible. What's happening to our Lord? Later, they would understand all along, Jesus was part of the plan. He was willing to sacrifice his own will. His self-will was put aside to do the Father's will. And it wasn't just by, you know, a bad turn of events that all of a sudden, one of Jesus' closest comrades, one of the 12 that he spent all this time with, one of the 12 that had been trained, one of the 12 that he had trusted, get this, out of all of them, he trusted Judas with the money. He trusted him and he betrayed him. 
And then and they might be thinking, the disciples, oh, this is so unfortunate. Jesus really trusted this guy. It's horrible how this thing played out. It's the sovereignty of God playing out. Jesus knew this. He was part of the plan, which is why, as P.T. Butler so brilliantly pointed out, Judas didn't just go off and do this. Jesus sent him. Go do what you're going to do. And that's fascinating. So at this point, he says a new command. Is this really new? I mean, come on. Hasn't God told his people to love others before? Yeah. Hasn't Jesus told people? Yeah. But this command could not be given before. Jesus is going to demonstrate on the cross an amazing, a spectacular demonstration of love. A sacrifice of love that is so incredible, it's hard to even describe. You can't really describe it with words. You kind of have to experience it. And so Jesus grants that experience. This is talked about in Ephesians. And I want to read that to you in Ephesians chapter 3, starting with verse 14. Listen to this. For this reason, I bow my knees, Paul is writing this, before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Well, that says a lot. In drafting, there's this thing called a three-point perspective. And the idea is to give all the angles possible from one particular location. So you do a three-point perspective. With modern video games and TV and movies, we, we've seen some 3D-type animation that is pretty cool. You can sit in front of a TV or at the movie theater and feel like things are coming at you. That would be 3D. And we are described about the love of God in a fourth dimension here, fourth, four different Ways. Not only are you seeing from an angle, you can see the sides and the top or the sides and the bottom. You, you're actually seeing all of it in what Jesus demonstrated. And that's why it's described as this, the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. And Jesus demonstrates this on the cross. And he wants, Paul is praying that everybody comes to an understanding of this. It's a big, big deal. I'm going to read the rest of it. In that passage, Ephesians chapter 3, the next slide. The verse 30 and following. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, back in the text we already read, I want to look at it again. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. I'll read it again. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, 
you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So he couldn't have given this commandment before because he hadn't done what you see in the trailer in the movie that just came out this weekend that Stephanie told me, wait, um, she's out of town, so I'm not supposed to go watch it without her. We're going to watch it together. You've seen it, the Jesus Revolution. You've seen the trailer for this. It's cool that lots of buzz is going on about it. Lots of non-Christians are probably going to watch it. But one of the trailers shows uh, the main actor in there that's uh, representing Chuck Smith, Kelsey Grammer. He's washing feet. Have you all seen that trailer? As people are coming in, a bunch of hippies are coming in and he's washing their feet. And that's really not, the the point of Jesus' story isn't that churches should do physical foot washing. That's not the point. The point is to humble yourself, put self-will aside, sacrifice for others, for them to be better. That's the whole idea is we're supposed to be putting others ahead of ourselves, which is what Jesus did. Just before they sat back down around the table, he had washed their feet. He humbled himself. The creator of the universe did this. That's a very humbling thing. And then he says to them, he has this intimate moment, and he says, as I've loved you, love one another. Put the others ahead of yourself. He just showed them this. And he's going to show them even more at the cross. But he's already set the tone. And in this intimate moment, Judas is out now, but in this intimate moment, he's basically saying to them, you're feeling my love. Make sure other people feel that. That's what he's saying. Then he takes it a step further in the second verse here, verse 35, it's on the screen behind me. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. What if you don't? That's why that word if is there. They're going to know. People are going to know you're a disciple of Jesus if you have love for one another. That's how they're going to know. Now, I need to give you a couple more slides, quotes from P.T. Butler. I told you I'd do this. So here you go. This is what P.T. Butler said. Is this a new commandment? Has he never before given them the precept of love to keep? The newness of the commandment contained in that his disciples are to love one another even as their master has loved them. No such love could have been commanded before because no such love had ever been exhibited before. This love of Jesus for men goes even deeper than the command for a man to love one another as he loves himself. For Jesus loves us more then we love ourselves. It's only by allowing Christ to dwell in us through faith that we can even come near to comprehending what is the breadth and length and depth and height of love of Christ, of the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. I give you that scripture before. One more slide of P.T. Butler's. The dimensions of his love are as boundless and limitless as faith. If his disciples have this love for one another... His presence will be living and abiding in them and working through them. And by such love will the whole world know the presence of Christ and know that such men are his disciples. Doctrinal doctrinal correctness is not 
all there is to Christian discipleship. As important as that is, and there's scripture, 1 John 2, 3, and 4, but a Christ-like love for one another is equally essential, 1 John 2, 5 to 11. This is the type of love that would cause a Paul to write. In Romans 9, 2, for I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. By this, all men know that you are my disciples. Well, let's talk about that. Because Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, something similar. So now he's at the, toward the end of his ministry. But let's go back to the Sermon on the Mount when he already said something like this. Look in Matthew chapter 7, one of my favorite chapters, starting with verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Well, isn't that interesting? So that's what he said at the beginning of his ministry. And at the end of his ministry, as it's coming to an end here on earth in the, in the flesh, he says, they'll know you're mine if you love one another. So the fruits we should be producing should be love for one another. That's how they're going to know. A good tree from a bad tree, how you love others. So if you grabbed a little piece of paper when you came in, you want to draw, there's some drawing involved with taking notes. There are some who couldn't be here today, and I know we'll be listening to this online. And at this point in time, while they're listening, they'll be reaching for a back of an envelope to scribble or something like that. But if you have something to write, you might want to write this down because it's a complicated chart. So up behind me, you see it, um, and it's complicated. Anytime you do an analogy, it, it typically falls short of the reality. So an analogy is simply something that you use. Uh, uh, speaking metaphorically is something that comes alongside the truth, like a parable. It comes alongside the truth. It's not the truth all by itself. It illustrates the truth and highlights the truth. So they innately have flaws because they're not the truth all by themselves. So don't think that I think my chart is greater than any truth. It just helps us illustrate some truth. And the small print you can see up at the top says world. And that's because we're just trying to look at the world. But within the world, we have, you know, Scripture tells us you're not of this world. We're aliens. We don't belong here. So we have this thing God set up on that circle you see to the left, circle within a circle, the triangle representing God. I've drawn this up here before you before, so if some of you have already seen this, uh, not, the, not the double one, but just the single one. So I call that the ring of fellowship or the circle of fellowship. Because when you are in the circle of fellowship or in the ring of fellowship, and you see the other words in the, in the circle, there's the Greek word koinonia, when you translate it, it's translated with two common words in the church. We translate it as 
fellowship. We also translate it as communion. They actually are the same thing. So when we are having communion, like we did in our service a little bit ago, when we actually use the elements, the bread and the juice, to remember Jesus coming in the flesh and dying, giving up his life for us, and then ascending to heaven in the flesh as well, we were actually supposed to be having communion with each other and the Lord. That's what that's for. That's why the church comes together and does communion. We don't take communion. We have communion. Does that make sense? That's what it is. We're having fellowship with each other and the Lord. That's what communion is. That's why you're supposed to reconcile any differences that you might have with your siblings in Christ before you dare have communion or you eat and drink your own condemnation. You're supposed to be fellowshipping with your brothers and sisters in Christ with the Lord as we use those elements to draw us together. So fellowship, let's say, let's not talk about the elements. Let's just talk about the fellowship with God, the fellowship with others. The way God's designed this whole thing that we call fellowship is the more you you get close and stay close to your Christian brothers and sisters in whatever circle you're in, that necessarily brings you closer to God. See how this works? And here's how it plays out. Let's just say you're here and I'm preaching to the choir. Let's just say next week, just before church, you go out and there's, you have a flat tire. Oh, man. So you got to deal with that and you don't make it. And the next week, you're going to come to church, but then you get a phone call. Now you got to deal with something with family two weeks, and then something else the next week. And after a while, if you miss a few, it's easier to keep missing. It's so much harder to get back into it because now you've been missing. And so let's say that's what you do. You get into this pattern of missing. And when you get into this pattern of missing, then it's real easy to start being critical of the people you used to fellowship with. I've missed six weeks now. I don't know if I'm going to go back. Someone might be talking to a neighbor or something. I don't know. And you know, the way those people are anyway, I just, you know. There's one time there was this thing that happened, and, and we start getting critical of the people that we used to not be so critical of. Maybe you've seen this play out. Maybe it happened to you. It's happened to me. So fellowship prevents that kind of thing. When you are fellowshipping with your brothers and sisters on a regular basis, it's very hard to be overly critical of them, because you love them. And, and, the, and when you're having those things, let's just say you, you, you go over somebody in the church in your little circle of fellowship, let's say somebody says, hey, why don't you come over? So-and-so is going to come over. We're going to have a couple of other church people over. And you hang out, and you wind up in the kitchen. It often winds up in the kitchen. <laughs> this is fascinating that Jesus is around the table with his disciples while he's having this conversation. So... Maybe you're around the table and you're with family and you should do that. If you don't do that as a family, if you don't gather around the table, you're missing out. Gather around the table. Maybe they're gathering around the table with a family or or a church family. And what happens is you bond. And that fellowship with that nucleus of Christians gets stronger. 
And you know what happens? You start thanking God for that. You start thanking God for them. What happens is that fellowship is drawing you necessarily closer to God. That's the way it works. But on the other side, if you miss six weeks and then you start becoming critical and you, you know what? That lack of fellowship is necessarily pulling you away from God. Are you with me? Does everybody understand this? Okay, so now we understand how fellowship is supposed to work. It's designed to keep us close to God. We, get, we are supposed to work together and love each other, and we get closer together, we get closer to God. Okay, let's talk about the world, uh, or another part of the world. <laughs> in the world, we also have those that are inside the devil's domain. If you read scripture, you can read my latest blog that's on our website. Um, it talks about this a little bit. If you're not on... If you're not with Jesus, you are necessarily against him. That's the way it works. So that would mean you're in the devil's domain. In the world in which we live, here's what people say on a regular basis. It's very popular, very trendy, and very not Christian. You do you. Do you. you do you. That's the thing. You do you. That's, you're supposedly a moral person if you're talking to somebody who's struggling through life. And if you say, well, you know, you, you do you, man. You do you. Now... You just license them to go do whatever. Do it your way. So self-centered, selfishness, that's all very much in the devil's domain. And all of that leads to hell. Just like getting outside the fellowship of believers and staying outside the fellowship of believers leads to hell. Hebrews 10, 25 to 27. Now, here's some things we need to talk about. The people that are in the devil's domain are watching. They're watching. And you'll see this eyeball, this nasty-looking eyeball pops up over there behind me. They're watching. Because we interact with them in the world. I mean, we might have our little circle of fellowship, but we don't just attend church. We don't just attend Bible study. We still go to the store. We still take care of our lawn. We still you know, interact with other family who don't fellowship with us. We, we interact with people who are in the devil's domain. We don't judge them. We just know that if they're, they don't know Christ, you know, they're lost. That's what the Scripture teaches. It's not our judgment. But they're watching. They see how we act. And sometimes, I, I did a thing, and I, I refuse to show you. I did some searches on the internet to find out how people in the devil's domain view us as Christians. There's a reason why the world is spiraling out of control. We Christians aren't really exactly setting a great example to the world. <clears throat> when you think about it, as your neighbors watch you, as your coworkers watch you, as your family watches you, as people watch you and your interactions on the internet, what do they see? I have a couple of questions. You'll see the first one pop up behind me. Do they know we love one another? When people see how we interact with other Christians, do they know we love one another? When they see us that claim we're Christians interacting with other people, do they know we love one another? 
We used to, in fact, you might do this, but every, every now and then, and we used to as a church, uh, there were times when little groups would go out on Sundays after church. And I used to do this thing if I was part of one of those groups at a restaurant and we're tipping a waiter or waitress and somebody invites the waiter or waitress to church, I used to say something like, you know, if we quit coming here after church, you wouldn't have to work and then you could come to church. But um, a little dilemma there. Used to be where churches were closed on Sunday, so anybody who wanted to go to church could go. But now things are open, and so people have to work on Sundays because we support them. We, we, we'll go, and I don't have an issue with it because I do it. Maybe I'm justifying it. I don't know. But I've been out with Christians. I love going. So when we go to the movie theater, the men are going to go to the movie theater this Saturday to watch Creed 3. Um, I hope each man that's there that buys a ticket and buys food over tips a little so that when we leave, the people there at the movie theater think, I love those people. Those, I want them to come back more. I want them to feel loved by us. And when you go to a restaurant, it's nice that if the waiter or waitress who might be going through struggles in life, and typically they might be, feel loved by the people who say they're Christians. You know, hey, we just came from Central Kitsap Christian Church. We're just coming out after church. We're having lunch. And more than one time, I've been out to eat and uh, felt embarrassed that I was connected to a group. We all said we go to this church. And here I was, the preacher, and somebody got upset because their steak wasn't done exactly as they asked. So instead of asking just kindly, could you please fix this? They talked in a way that was unkind to the waiter or waitress. Do they know we love one another? When we're out in public, when we're dealing with family, when we're interacting on the internet, do they know we love one another? They're watching. Do they know? You don't understand, Pastor. Some people can be very frustrating. Do they know? Do they know when they see that sticker on the back of your car, Central Kitsap Christian Church, by how you drive, that you consider others better than yourself? Or do you think you have to be first and you have to be faster and all these other things? There are some that if I were to offer a Central Kitsap Christian Church sticker to put on the back windshield, would refuse to put it on because they know they don't drive like Christians are supposed to drive. Pay attention to the chart. Where does that lead? I have another question. Up behind me, you'll see it pop up. Do they know you love them? The people in your family that get under your skin, person at work that is so obnoxious, the neighbor that everybody is irritated with, person on the internet that purposely tries to stir things up, the person you live with that pushes your buttons, <laughs> do they know you love them like Jesus wants you to? But pastor, it's not easy. No, no, it wasn't easy for Jesus to go to the cross either. It's not supposed to be easy. Here's the thing. These people that are 
act in the way they're acting. You've heard this before, right? Hurt people hurt people. Those people that are mean usually got some junk going on in their life and they don't know what it's like to be loved like Jesus loved. They don't, they don't know it. So ask yourself the question, do they know I love them? Do the people who know me well, do they know I love them? That's what Jesus is talking about. Let's pray. God help us because sometimes we fail you, Lord. Sometimes people that know us well don't know that we love them as you would have us love them. Forgive us, Lord. We want to represent you well. We want people to know that we are yours by the way we love others. Teach us better ways to do that. Show us how we can demonstrate and how we can illustrate your love in our daily interactions. Lord, if there's any of us here who need to make phone calls or go visit some people who we need to straighten some things out so that they can know that we love them the way you want us to, Lord, help us, those of us who need to do that. Help us to take the steps necessary. And God, we lift up to you those that couldn't make it here today. We lift up to you those people that you've put in our paths that we need to demonstrate your love. Give us those opportunities. And when we fail, give us new opportunities. And Lord, help us to seek opportunities to show people your love. Help us to purposely get around people so that we can show your love, so that the world can see, so that your light may shine through us into the dark lives of others all around us. Lord, we know you're not happy with the direction this whole world is going. Help us do our part. Love others through us. In Jesus' name, amen.